think I should begin. Uh, today, we are going to look at a, a unit uh, in my book called Six Dialogic Poetry Chapbooks called Russian Loves. Now, you know, I am supremely devoted to word music. I think it changes uh, everything it touches. And uh, I look for mentors, poetic mentors, because I, I believe in uh, uh, dialogic verse translation. What I do is I find a mentor who writes in a supremely melodious way, and then I uh, not only try to translate this person uh, with extreme fidelity in the most form-faithful way I can to both uh, rhymes uh, and uh, assonances, alliterations, and uh, rhythm schemes, stanza forms, as well as to the thought and feeling. Uh, but then what I do uh, to internalize this and to become more fully uh, the, uh, the scripture I sing is to uh, uh, then write a, re a reply of my own, an original poem in dialogue response. And so it's like a talk show. Uh, the the uh, mentor, my friend, my collaborator, my teacher, my guide is also my guest. And then when I listen to what this person has to tell me about what matters most, I reply uh, in, in, a, in the form, for the most part, that I have uh, just learned. And in this way, I remain a perpetual apprentice and generally speaking, not talking about myself, but in response to another human being, something more than I am, someone outside me. Okay, so now I'd like to show you how I do this with my Russian loves in this book. There are three Russians whom I interview. There is Alexander, that is Alexander Pushkin, the greatest of all Russian poets ever. There's universal agreement on that. Then there's number two in the ranking on the roster, Mikhail, that is Michael Lermontov, who's really quite wonderful. And then there's a third, uh, Athanasius, that is Afanasi Fiat, uh, who's almost unknown in America, but ranked among the very highest among Russians. So, Pushkin, Lermontov, Fiat. Uh, I will read from them, and then I will reply to them. Here we go. Now, I'm very happy to start with Prisoner by Alexander Pushkin. Also, uh, his poem Raven that I will do afterward. Uh, they're interesting because they take us into the realm of folktale or fairy tale or folk song, because in all three cases, birds speak to us. Here we go. I sit behind bars in a jail, rough and bare. An eagle, still young and race captive, is there. Sad comrade, his wings wildly flapping, his mood despondent, he pecks at his blood-covered food. He pecks at it, throws it away, death denied, as if he had thought it was time we defied our fate, for he calls me in gaze and in cry, and wants to say, out of here, come, let us fly, feel bird freedom, comrade, come brother, let's go, where cloud-covered mountains are radiant with snow, where floods are a surge on the shore, let us roam, wherever the winds and we birds have our home. I'll reply to that. The trees make you tall, and the birds make you brave. The winds make you wild, whirling flames make you rave. 
Wide farms make you spread out your arms to embrace, while soft-rolling, grassy-maned hills make you race. White sands make you willing to walk though you fall. Sear leaves of the autumn to children will call, who toss them and heap them and leap on the pile, all roused by their laughter, carousing in style. Cold pebbles in water, the textures appeal. The soles of your feet are your main way to feel. Sharp breezes will stiffen. The hair on your skin will set your heart pounding. Speed blood up within. The elements whirled you. To set you astir, they burr and they churr and they purr and they whirr. That bird got to me. Now we will have two more birds. They're having a conversation of a different kind and not so nice. Ravens. Raven flies toward Raven brother. Raven shouts to ask the other. Raven, have you found some food? I am in a hungry mood. Raven answers eagerly, underneath a willow tree, in a field a knight I saw, ready killed for Raven's maw. Who it was that laid him low, ready, sorry, sure his falcon well must know, falcon, steed, and waiting wife, they can tell. Who took his life? Falcon's gone in deepest green. On the steed a foe was seen, and the wife awaits her dear, not the dead one, to appear. That is just a perfect folk song. Could be set to music. I'm sure it has been many times. Here's my reply. In the light of my present-day world. Cloud cried out to comrade Cloud, Brood not, brother, stay unbowed. Cyclone, hurricane, typhoon, Let us love a tempest tune. We will rage, and so will they, Who have set the winds in play. Men have heated up the seas, Force will heave the storm with ease. Waiting for the final day, all who raven on the prey sing a hymn of dark delight to the coming of the night. Men have aided all they might. Let them die. They fly the light. I think you know what I'm talking about. For my last Pushkin, I am going to give you something a little more cheerful in mood. This is not about what is, but what might be. He is building on a, a phrase from Horace, ex egi monumentum aere perennius. I build a monument more durable than bronze. I built myself a monument not made by hands. The people's path to it will not be overgrown. Topping the Alexander column, tall it stands, unhumbled 
and alone. No, I'll not wholly die, for by the treasured lyre my dust will be alive, and no corruption, no. Glory is mine, so long as one true poet's fire shines in the worlds below. My fame will soon be spread, and cover Russia great, and every tongue within that realm will speak of me. Proud grandchild, Slav or Finn, Tungus in wilder state, or Kalmuk, step friend free. And I will ever be more cherished by the folk, because in this my cruel era I would prize freedom, good feeling, with my kindly lyre awoke, and for the fallen sigh. To the divine command, submit, muse, willingly. Holding no fear of injury, you need no wreath. Slander and laurel view with equanimity. Regard not fools beneath. I did this uncharacteristically, not in the Pushkin form, but in Dante's Terza Rima, a form that he used in the Divine Comedy, which is rhyming uh, lines one and three, four and six, one and three, four, two and four, and so on. Uh, that was, uh, uh, I think, made very suitable by Dante for a solemn theme, and yet one also to convey a kind of reassuring tranquility, because it's true that he uses it for hell, but then there's also purgatory, and in the end there's paradise. So here's my reply in the Dantescan uh, rhythm style. If those whom great Apollo gifted with a lyre, or as I rather would imagine violin, to raise the Orphic underworldly wonder higher with son filet, a golden thread, would boldly spin a fate-like spell by which the people closed their eyes, might listening, a soul to David's world within, feel as from Odin's runic odes on ruined rise, a wind of peace to win a spirit life, to plead love, not the fears that mirror what they would despise. Then let me answer now our barren weeping need by leaders harried who, disheartening in pride, dart snake-like venom enmity. Might hearers heed a harmony, and being fruitful sing, decried would hate flames die, and love, love would be glorified. And so we'll take our leave of uh, Pushkin, my first cherished mentor, and my second mentor now is Lermontov, and I have a couple of my favorite poems by him. The first is called Angel, and it has a wonderful tranquility, but a most burdensome sadness. It's like a, a perfectly beautiful a serenade by Tchaikovsky, my favorite Russian composer. At midnight in heaven, an angel flew by while living a hymn to the sky. 
The moon to the melody listened. In crowds, the stars were attentive. The clouds. He praised what is perfect, the bliss to be known in paradise gardens alone. Of God the Almighty, the chant unconstrained in faithfulness, pure and unfeigned. Embracing, he cradled a soul full of, free of fears, who'd live in a valley of tears. The tune without words he had tenderly sung remained in that spirit so young. Though long in the world she would languish and cry, still filled with desire for the sky, the heavenly hymn had to yield to the birth of tedious plaint of the earth. I have also got a mixed mood uh, presentation in my reply. I call it Homo dubitans. Homo sapiens is the wise man. Homo dubitans is the man of doubt. mixed mood. When the rafters arise and make dafter the skies, and while higher the laughter mood flies, may we luton a tune that enwrapped plenilune with an anger answering craft bears a boon? Can an animal strange with abandonment change what its nature deems natural range? May a sadhu in age, avid passion assuage, and made naked be magen and sage? We may doff or may dawn, what by morning ray drawn made us trade in the yawn for the yawn. Twixt the more and the less, the distinction we'd bless, if we littler could tell from largesse. Tis a big masquerade we're, we've in thinking displayed, and on stage of our days have portrayed. Yet nostalgia's a pain like neuralgia, with strain being placed on the gains we attain. I have one more poem by Lermontov, and maybe it sums up the man as well, maybe better than anything he ever wrote. He loves the clouds. They're so different from him. He feels exiled, driven out, misunderstood and banished. They don't know anything of that because they're wanderers. And they are so of, uh, intrinsically and essentially wanderers that they don't know anything at all about home. And therefore, they have no homelessness. Heavenly cloudlets, eternally wandering, azure plain, passing, in pearly chain flurrying, floating like me, language banishment pondering, leaving the north to the southern realm hurrying, what could be driving you, burdensome fatefulness? You're not the target of jealous autocracy, guilt of your own, or glad enemies, hatefulness, venom of slander or friendly hypocrisy. Rather, you're bored with the wheat fields' sterility, 
nothing you know of our passions importunate. Cold in bold freedom you conquer fragility, having no home and no homelessness. Fortunate! That's Lermontov. I meditate on him for a while in his rhythms. Why the delight, nearly fright of the flying? Here in Ephiliad, that's a cloud spirit, sweeter than striving, fleeter the floating, no cry or denying, merely a moment, a height, an arriving. Blithe and unburdened by stature and status, courting authority nowhere and never, cooler cerulean, oral afflatus, moved by an inward ineffable lever, levity entered, an airy escaping, shedding dead weight in a blessed iridescence, empty, unending, renewing, reshaping, jewel-bright blue in a trembling juvescence. Ready the rainbow to welcome the dew, warning auroral thrust upward to you. My vision isn't quite so lonely as his. Well, we're different people. I never echo anybody. I try not to imitate, but to emulate. Emulation involves a degree of rivalry. I try to write as well as he, but actually uh, my secret wish is always to write even better. I'm a different person I'm, and uh, uh, what I f write feels even more right to me because I'm making it than anything that anyone has made for me as deeply, as crucially as I am indebted to that. Here's another reply. This time I reply to Pushkin too. I'm so grateful to both. A combat, an homage, a battle, a ball, a mirror, Narcissal or Persian, play of currents that clash and disturb, move away, return for a jostle, a tussle, a brawl. Proud Lermontov, lovable Pushkin, today you're coming to calm as a David to Saul. You'll conquer, of course, yet you never appall, but bold the fell demon and drive brightly away. I rhyme for the both of you, right without fall, alliance and rivalry, stagger and sway, recover and lunge, thus the warrior may, attempt to be worthy, rise up, that is all I wanted, you haunted me, long led astray by prose, I'm emboldened, beholden for A. The kind of poems that I write are, I write are not like other people's poems. Uh, I like intricate, elegant form, and the more intricate the, the, my, mentor, uh, my mentor makes his work, the, the, the more doubly intricate I want mine to be. And the more elegant and artless he appears to be, let me double those traits too. That's, uh, th that will create a feeling of invigoration, but also of loneliness, you know? You're the racer and you're there by yourself. Oh, number three, my third reply, I can't stop, I've actually done four to this poet. There's nothing like it for any of the other poets. Uh, mindfulness uh, it, it gave me deep joy to write. It's not quite in the same meter, but very close to it, and with, I hope, comparable energy of flight. Mindfulness. Never tethered, all-weathering, better to dare, temerarious, airy, aware, that wherever we go there will follow the foe, stagnant laggard to dam up the flow. For with limiting, shrinking, timidity still, and with waning and wasting of will, and a lead 
heavy lethargy, whining for waste, to deprive us of drive in our days. There's no quicker elixir to fill with resolve, to envelop, invent, and evolve, than transcending the fixed with a whisk away, risk, flinging will into dizzying risk. For the tears in all things are the fears that maul wings and the squall that will stall one who sings. Let me never forget that the wrench of regret will mean death by a seal that is set. If the judges on high will not budge, pass them by and declining a while from the sky, spur like chariot horses the forces below. You'll move faster and masterly grow. Hampered hankerings hurtful, ungainly with guilt, move it forward, made fertile, a silt sifted onto a delta when melted by rain to engender broad health on the plain. Then resemble the veil which at night will inhale, breathing outward at dawn without fail. From the earth we relearn to respire, and we burn to incite a new birth in our turn. That's my most excited reply. And yet I have also the Lermontov feeling, uh, Lermontovian feeling that I have to fight off uh, lethargy and any kind of, uh, of inner timidity that may fight against my will to aspire. What I, one thing also that I do, particularly as it happens to relate to the problematic aspects, the need for constant struggle, is I have secrets in the poem. Lermontov is not my only mentor. I also allude a couple of times to Virgil's Aeneid. For example, for the tears in all things are the fears that maul wings. The tears in all things is Virgil's phrase. He said, sunt lacrimae rerum et mentem mortaria tanguunt. There are tears to things and mortality touches the heart. And then down later on the page when I say, if the judges on high will not budge, pass them by and spur like chariot horses the forces below. I am uh, there quoting him when he says, Flectere sinequeo superos acheronta moebo. If I cannot bend the powers above, I shall set in motion those below. That's one of my very favorite Virgil lines. Sigmund Freud uh, chose it as the motto for his book, Interpretation of Dreams, which was one of the most crucial reading experiences of my life. And now for my last reply to the Lermontov poem. It's, I call it apropos of Van Gogh. He, he's a wonderful Lermontov in, in the visual arts. L lonely? Well, he was lonely because his eyes were so wild. When he walked down the street, people would, would sca be scared. And, uh, but he could always write a letter to his brother. And that's when his collected letters to his brother are one of the spiritual testaments of humankind. Van Gogh didn't stop when his work wouldn't sell. He sold one painting in his life. And I will keep going as well. No slowing me down for the flowing won't cease nor boatmen have rowing release. You have to be driven, have striven, have sought for that which no man can be taught before you'll have thriven, be given a source, reward to the forward to force. None's lonely in love for the coming unknown.
I don't borrow that from anyone, but it sounds like something one had heard before. Nuns lonely in love for the coming unknown. That means that we are all in love with what is not yet. We have to make it. In storm wind is morning bestrown. In other words, the dawn is hiding behind the clouds. The ray in the star that arrived at your eye imparted a farther time sky. In other words, the, the ray of the star that just entered your eye and is gleaming there still was emitted trillions of years ago and only just got here. The flame in the star and the claim in your glance remain in that angel hair lance. The mud and the blood and the flood are at one and blunder and muddle are done. Those are my first two mentors that I've chosen for presentation in the section Russian Loves, which I'm focusing on tonight. I have one last poet. He's been ignored. Uh, maybe people think he's too hard to translate. I don't know. I, I, I honestly do not know. I think that literary reputations are very like the stock market. I'll uh, in fact, guided chiefly by irrational factors. And I want to do something about that. Uh, I'd like to write a whole book of translations of Fiat, and I may do that still. So here's a little sample of a mood from Fiat. It's called Bees. I feel indolent, dull, discontented, hating living alone, and my knees getting weaker, my heart pain augmented, while the lilac buds airy, fine-scented, are pervaded with buzzing of bees. I might wander a bit in the clearing, or a walk in the wood may be best, but my stamina, fast disappearing, in my heart, what a heat, such a searing, not a cold, but a cool in my breast. More complaining, again I'm succumbing. Now, that cherry tree simply appears to dream calmly, but bees and more humming. How to tell if the droning is coming from the lilac buds? Maybe my ears? Very likely, likely you haven't heard a poem quite of that sort before. I had a good time uh, writing a reply because I, all, all I do is to try to figure it out while at the same time writing word music. They are emblems of honey turned bitter, the implacable gathering bees, when the gleams of a memory glitter and the thoughts of unfaithfulness flitter. We evade them in vain, seeking ease. For the buzz and the drone are translations, shaping tone of the heat of the coal, from within and without intimations of a fatal malaise, indications that the spirit will never be whole. For the lilac aromas are lonely, lightly born from the buds where the buzz means attack. They're a lack, they can only feel the harm where a harmony was. That's what I mean by word music transforming everything it touches.
Oh, this I love. This could be a whole chapter from a novel. Don't ask. Don't ask what I keep thinking, worrying about. To tell it would be hard. Already I'm too harried. A mad dream fills my heart. It's power running out into the gulf of years against my will is carried. I love one bright enchanter more than anything. I looked, my ardent heart was dragged in that direction. The way a storm-trapped pigeon vainly beats his wing upon the glass, that's how I prayed for her affection. Today before a face of beauty that may mock, not blinded as before with unrequited passion, my heart is still a fool, like some decrepit clock that strikes from time to time in its own maddened fashion. I was an adolescent. What a foggy season. My mother lay in sickbed. Lilacs trembled, tearful. My childhood girlfriend had to leave us for some reason, going away a long, long while, and I was fearful. No swallows sweeping down before the glass, gyrating. No lines of midges swarmed, colliding, flying bright. The pigeons tranquil sat, with fluffed up feathers, waiting. In lime groves, quieted, more birds were hid from sight. Above the well, where perched on long, low-hanging pole, a tub, old, blown about, would sway, a pendant swinging, a raven suddenly, more black than branch or bowl, cawed, rasping, sharp, abrupt, his flight still upward flinging. That cry died long ago. Around me, racket, laughter, but never will my heart in unlearn what made it shy. I look into your eyes and love their wit, but after I tremble, waiting for the raven's ugly cry. Now his psychologist will try to sum up what he was trying to say. That's, they don't always do that. A lot of times they're just quiet and they wait for another week to go by and hear the story repeated. But uh, I was impatient, so I'm going to try to give a Lermontov voice in a, in, in a somewhat different clarifying way, I hope. A dream I feel is nothing less than mad will die, despairing, drowning, down the boundless gulf, too late to hold it back, and yet a part of me must try. My girlfriend gone, I would persuade myself, await her loved return, though even pigeons on the gate, uncooing, moveless, made me restless, want to fly. No midge or swallow stirred. The pole, in comic state, Tub-topped above the well, felt foolish, and the cry of that unspeakable black bird, a trap 
awry, alack, a tolling death knoll, for the ghostly mate of soul too hopeful, to my mouth had brought a dry and hoarsely whispering admission of my fate. A pigeon to this day, and attic trapped am I, and hear that madding raven, and we both know why. I've read that poem before several times. I never read it the same way twice. I read it angrily in, in this, this time, this version's conclusion, but sometimes I have read it with despair. Uh, I can't tell what kind of style of acting will come. Anyway, it prepares me for the last poem, which has a marvelous form. It is written in also in the, I tried this once before, in the Dantesque and Terza Rima, line one rhymes with line three, line two with line four. Uh, it's trinal rhyme, in other words, and the iambic pentameter, just as Dante used in Divine Comedy. You may see at the end why I chose that. It's traditional for solemn themes. Uh, and it conveys a variety of moods. And this is a particularly interesting, complicated mood. I want to just pause and look at the first line. My day gets up, a toiler tired and poor. That's a very powerful line and worth many entire poems that I have read. My day gets up. In other words, he doesn't tell you he's getting up. His day is getting up. The border between him and the day is quite indistinct. He rises like the sun, but what if the sun isn't shining? What if there's no, no energy left? And you see that the, uh, the porous or fissile or, or even simply faded, faded and, and vague and indiscernible border between yourself and the world around you, the mood, the atmosphere surrounding, uh, makes you a, a, a kind of world in yourself, and yet, if that world is depleted, a lot has been depleted. So let's just go on and see how this develops. My day gets up, a toiler tired and poor, and tries to shine, devoid of strength, of light. I, anxious, brood, brood and worry, sad, unsure. We're not alike. We'll never get it right. But moon rays there, into the garden stealing, while trembling day will bear the coming night, who puts the lamp out with her breath, revealing another light surrounding you, oh best. You come to comfort me emboldened feeling the day is now forgotten that depressed me so i walk with you our eyes tear-filled we go together arm in arm both blessed the shadow gone my dismal doubting still She'll haloed hold a hand if he will ask, and born of nightly peace will gracious greet a helper, counselor the daylight task. 
that stole from life whatever had been sweet, a vanished bane and never wholly real. The holy mother coming in to meet her worry-weakened suppliant can heal a spirit wound from which the tears yet flow. Their commonwealth may balm a painful wheel. Halted the twofold movement that will go throughout the day toward the magnet pole and back. Fulfillment, fear, above, below. The purgatory of a thirsting soul. You see why I wrote it in the Dantescan Terzarima. Dante's middle section between hell and paradise is purgatory. That's where the souls are tested and have to prove themselves. Also, you notice he calls her the Holy Mother, so that she's not exactly like a partner, a spouse, a girlfriend. She's a little too spiritual for that. And that's fitting because he is the sort of person between whose self and the world or mood around him, there's no discernible border. So for her to be a spiritual or semi-spiritual being means that she can be a part of that vague atmosphere that is his totality. Thank you so much. <laughs>